If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 2 Timothy. We'll be looking at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And a little background about the book. Uh, 1 Timothy is uh, one of the books that we would call a pastoral epistle. It's unlike uh, maybe other books in the Bible that were written to churches. Uh, the pastoral epistles were actually written to men, uh, Timothy and, and Titus. And so you, you might say that. Uh, Paul does write to churches, and, and he wants to come alongside of churches, but Paul also wants to write to pastors and to come alongside of them. And in Paul's theology, healthy pastors make for healthy churches. And so this, this afternoon, I want us to think about uh, this chapter in 2 Timothy, and the backdrop of it is Paul's in prison, and Timothy is his child in the faith, and he's left Timothy in Ephesus to pastor, and it's hard, and uh, Timothy is afraid, and uh, it's not going as Timothy thought ministry would go, and so Paul, his father in the faith, is writing words to a young minister. Second Timothy 1 through, uh, chapter 1, verse 1 through 18, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher which is why I suffer as I do. But I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day, and you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Amen. Let us pray. 
Our Father, we uh, bow and do ask your blessing upon our time. Your word is true. Your word is alive. Your word is powerful. Your word is correcting. Your word is rebuking. It is encouraging. Father, we pray that you, by your spirit, would lay it out plainly, that we all might be built up into maturity, that our lives would look more like Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Every field uh, or vocation has a range of words that are vital to that particular field. You can't really be a good photographer if you don't know what aperture is or shutter speed or exposure or depth of field. You can't be a good basketball player if you don't know what a pick and roll or a screen or a zone or isolation is. You can't be a good engineer if you don't know what shot painting or tensile strength or shearing strength or stress fractures are. You, you can't do your job well. You can't be a good musician if you don't know what staccato is or key or half note or quarter note. You simply can't thrive in those fields unless you know some of the basic terminologies associated with working in that field. And I want to make the case to you tonight, Zach, is that's the same, the same is true for pastoral ministry. We will not be competent ministers without understanding a few key phrases that Paul embeds, not just here, but in all of the pastoral epistles. It's as if he's giving Timothy and Titus a basic framework that if you're going to labor faithfully, then you need to remember a few words. And what I want to put before you tonight, Zach, and for us all, is that the first word that, that Paul wants to impart upon Timothy that he has to sort of get familiar with is this sense of suffering, that a pastor must be ready to suffer. That suffering and pastoral ministry, they go hand in hand, that they're linked like co-joined twins. And I know we live in a day and age where it's easy as ministers to feel entitled. It's easy to feel as pastors that we're immune from suffering. And when you read this section, Paul is saying the opposite. That if we're going to be faithful ministers of the gospel, then we can say without a shadow of a doubt that suffering is in our path. And you sort of see it in verse 8 where he tells Timothy, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. But notice that phrase, but share in suffering for the sake of the gospel. Now, how could Paul tell Timothy to share in suffering for the gospel? Because Paul himself, the teacher, was suffering. He says in verse 11, I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher which is why I suffer as I do. So notice the link. What Paul is saying, the reason he is in prison, the reason he will lose his life, is inextricably tied to the reality that he has been appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. And Paul was in prison. That's why he says in verse 8, do not be ashamed of me. Paul knows that death awaits 
And Paul's in a really hard space because he actually says in verse 15 that it reads as if these are two of his friends, Phygelus and Hermogenes. He says that you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are these two men. That it reads as if when the suffering started to come upon these pillars in the church, that they were undone and they fled. And here's the question, who's right here? Is it the one Apostle Paul who's in prison, or is it those two men and all the other ministers who abandoned Paul on account of suffering? We know the answer. Let God be right and a million people be wrong. That Paul is suffering because he knows that he is not greater than his master. The Lord Jesus Christ came, and what happened is he suffered, and Paul is suffering. And now Paul is commending suffering to young Timothy, that Paul starts to talk about the, the work of the Lord Jesus in our passage, that he saved us and called us to this holy calling And it's not because of our works. It's not because of our giftedness. It's not because of our intellect, but because of his sovereign purposes and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Now think about that. We think about our salvation being dreamed up and and God's church given to him before the foundations of the world. But what Paul is also saying in this passage, God also gave to the church pastors before the foundation of the world. And he says, this has now been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And when Jesus came to do that work, he was not greeted with rose petals everywhere he walked. He was greeted with hostility, that he came to his own, and his own did not know him. That he came to his own, and his own rejected him. Our salvation was won through a Messiah who suffered, who died, who was buried, and who was raised. And that is true for God's pastors. I think it's easy for us to want to disassociate suffering from ministry. There are days when I feel entitled. God, you owe me a solid, right? You owe me a solid one, right? You ought to put a hedge of protection around me and my family and everything else because I'm a minister, right? And I think when you read the Bible, it's not the case. That we're called a minister, but we're called a sufferer. We'll take a lot of losses that our message of the cross is offensive, that the church and the daily anxiety and cares of the church, they weigh on our souls. Our own sin, it weighs on our souls. Confronting evil, calling out sin, it weighs and there's a cost to it. And so Paul is telling Timothy, you'll suffer. Do not disassociate yourself from suffering for the sake of Christ. I read something this week on the Gospel Coalition, and it was about uh, Augustine. And and here's a snippet from the article, and it speaks about suffering. In the last years of Augustine's life, the vandals began roving across northern Africa. 
and the marauders had crossed from Spain and were capturing Roman towns one by one. Their attacks were violent, accompanied by murder and rape and torture and arson, enslavement and pillaging of Christian churches. And many believers were asking, asking Augustine if it was acceptable to flee such a dreadful foe. His answer was wise and brave. One of his friends preserved his letter of reply. In it, he says, Christians are allowed to flee the barbarians, but pastors must stay behind until no one is left in their flock. Christians are free to flee, but as long as there is one member of your flock who can't leave, he says a minister can't leave. The love of Christ, Augustine writes, which has bound us not to desert the churches which we ought to serve should not be broken. Terror of the barbarian must never overcome a pastor's holy vocation. When a pastor remains with his people in the face of persecution, he fulfills 1 John 3.16. By this we know love, that Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. The first thing I commend to us is to pastor is to suffer. Associate those two things together. The second thing that I think Paul reminds us in this passage is a pastor must deeply rely upon the power of the Holy Spirit. And so in Paul's mind, a pastor and suffering, they're hand in hand, but also what's linked is a pastor and the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that that should feel like a crushing weight to stay when everyone leaves, to lay aside earthly comforts, to suffer, to endure, that we, we come here and we're selfish and we want to look after our own interests. And so what Paul is doing in this passage, on numerous occasions, he's telling Timothy, verse 8, not to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner. In verse 12, I am not ashamed, for he knows whom he has believed and is convinced that he is able to guard it until the day that which has entrusted. In verse 13, he tells Timothy to follow the pattern of sound words which you heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ. Now, why is Paul giving these admonitions? Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid. Stay and remember, because I think Paul detects that something is going on in Timothy's soul, that suffering is happening, that everyone is turning their backs upon the gospel and leaving. And Timothy is left, was left behind by Paul to stay. And Timothy is losing heart. And that's why he brings this word up, ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed. Now, why? Why, why would Paul talk about shame? I think it's probably twofold. On the one hand, there's probably shame because Timothy has probably heard that the servant is not greater than the master. And, and there's shame built around not living up to the ideals that he's been called to, the fact that he has to be encouraged and, and, and lightly rebuked by Paul would bring a sense of shame. But I also think what would bring a sense of shame is the mockery that comes can you imagine being a young pastor and you talk about serving the king 
immortal, invisible, and yet the man who discipled you has to answer to another king. Can you imagine pastoring and talking about how sovereign and good Jesus is? But look at where Paul is. Can you imagine Jesus talking about being the truth, the way, and the life, and it's not working out that way for him in his local context? And so Timothy is the odd man out. I think there's some shame associated there. And so maybe the solution is to put your big boy pants on, grit your teeth, hunker down, and be strong. Maybe Paul is telling Timothy, you have to get it together. Look inside of your own heart and be strong. Maybe that's what Paul is saying, and he's not. He's actually saying, you're not strong enough. You will be tempted to flee. You will be tempted to stick your hand in the fire of persecution. And you don't want it to stay there. Now, to get to where I want to go here, I think we have to understand the backdrop to this passage. I think it's Acts chapter 18 and 19. In Acts chapter 18, we hear about a man who was a Jew named Apollos. He was a native of Alexandria, and he came to Ephesus. And he was an eloquent man. Notice the, the, the adjectives used to describe him. He was eloquent, and he was competent in the scriptures, and he taught accurately, but he only knew the baptism of John. And he was taken aside by Priscilla and Aquila and explained the way of God more accurately. And when he came to Ephesus, he greatly helped those who had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews showing that Jesus was the Christ. And so notice he's described as eloquent and competent and accurate. But by the time Priscilla and Aquila finish with him, he's called powerful. And he's standing, and it's not his eloquence, and it's not his competency, but he has an alien power that is not in and of himself. And you see the same thing continued in the next chapter. When Paul comes to Ephesus, he meets 12 men who are disciples. And yet they ask, he asked them, have you received the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Into what then were you baptized? They said, John. And, and Paul says, John pointed us to Jesus. And they were baptized in the name of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit came upon them. Now, where is all of that happening in Acts 18 and 19? It's happening in Ephesus. You get the image? And where was Timothy called to stay and pastor? In Ephesus. So you might say that Ephesus had this minimalistic view of the Holy Spirit where Apollos had to be corrected. These disciples had to be corrected. And did you notice the appeal that Paul makes in this passage? Over and over and over again, he tells Timothy in verse 6, for this reason, I remind you to fan the flame of the gift of God. The flame has been lit. Now fan it. And what is the gift? Look at verse 7. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, of love and self-control. Look at verses 13 and 14. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit. Do you get the image? 
I think Paul knows that eloquence will only take us so far. And accuracy will only take us so far. And competency will only take us so far. You think accuracy helps you when your head is about to be beheaded? Nah. Paul is commending a power, a person to Timothy. Timothy, the weight of suffering will crush you. And there is a power, a person residing in you who loves you, who will never leave you nor forsake you, who will pour out his life to minister the good news to the inner man. The outer man can be wasting away and the inner working of the Holy Spirit can renew you day by day. I think what Paul is commending to Timothy in the face of suffering is not to hunker down and to try to do it in your strength. It's to trust and lean and learn and love and expect and to need the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Paul is convinced that a pastor must have this sense of suffering in his toolkit. He must also be aware of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the last thing that I think Paul is commending to us, a pastor must remember God's work in the family. Family and ministry go hand in hand. Did you catch how this passage started in verse 3? Notice what Paul says, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors. So underline that phrase, Paul, that, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. And so if you go back and look at other passages, Paul talks about being circumcised on the eighth day. He talks about uh, being a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He talks about being raised in the fear and admonition of the Lord. In other words, the apostle Paul that we have who's writing 2 Timothy was, was the apostle Paul who was discipled in Judaism, that he knew the scriptures. His faith was passed down. Now, there was an, some error because he had to be corrected in the way, but, but the foundation was put there by his ancestors. But did you also notice the same thing is true for Timothy? I am reminded of your sincere faith in verse 5, a faith that first dwelt in your grandmother Lois, and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you. That Paul was discipled by two women. They loved him. They read scriptures to him. They were there for him. That Timothy was loved and discipled by his mother and grandmother. That what we're starting to see is that the family unit is one of God's greatest tools to pass the faith. It's a high calling that we can leave our children resources. We can leave our children our hobbies. We can leave our children stuff. And yet one of the greatest things that we can leave them is our faith. Might they look at us and see Jesus But did you also notice how the passage ends? 
in verse 15 through 18, you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. And look at verse 16. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. Who does Paul give a shout out to at the end of chapter one? It's not just one man. He says his household. His household. This passage is bracketed by God's goodness and work in the family. That this one man, household in, the, in, in, in Paul's day, it, it, it probably meant this man and, and maybe his father and maybe his children and servants. But when Paul does the shout out, he shouts out the entire household saying, though all of Asia abandoned me, there was one household that did not. And they refreshed me. And he sought me out and he encouraged me. Now we're starting to see another purpose of the family that's coming right out of 2 Timothy. The family is used by God to spread the knowledge of the gospel from generation to generation to generation. But what we see in this man's household is once his family got root of the gospel, they moved towards suffering. And they moved towards the apostle who had been abandoned by all. Is that not a vision for family? That we receive the good news and then we are compelled by love for Christ to go and be those who spread it. And I don't think it's ironic, Zach, that you're being called as our assistant pastor of children and family ministries. This is a good and noble and high calling. May you, brother, keep our eyes on Jesus. May you, brother, continue to labor faithfully to help us think about how we might make disciples starting in our homes. May you, brother, Continue to keep our eyes not just on our nuclear family units, but those around us who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. God is sufficient. God is able. You will suffer. And he will work in you by his spirit. Might he also give you strength and wisdom to carry out this calling. Let's pray. Our Father, we bless you and we pray that your word would be applied to our hearts and that you would grow us up into maturity. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.